Good morning, brothers and sisters. Our scripture reading this morning is in Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to read the whole chapter together. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children, the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father real, he said to them, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry came for rescue. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this great passage, let's just ask for the Lord's help. 
God, our Father, we're reminded that those things that were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience and instruction in the Scriptures, might have hope. So we thank you for the faith of our fathers, for the faith of Moses, and now we just pray, Lord, that as we consider and meditate upon this passage, that you would restore our faith and our hope, that you would renew and build us up and convict us by your word, for we ask it, our Father, for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we just got started last week in our study of Exodus, and we find ourselves now in the second chapter. But in the first chapter of Exodus, we saw God taking up again the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, 400 years had passed since 70 members of Jacob's family had gone down to Egypt to ride out the famine, and now 400 years later, they're living as slaves to a pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and their lives are made bitter under the cruel lash of their taskmasters. But God had not forgotten them. And in the first chapter, we see that every crime that Pharaoh perpetrates against the children of Israel, God turns it around for the blessing of his people. When when Pharaoh persecutes them, it only causes them to grow and to spread abroad. And when he instructs the midwives to kill their sons, God turns the hearts of the midwives towards the children of Israel, and they spare the children and end up having their own children. And then when he commands that every baby boy be thrown into the Nile, we see that God uses this to put his man in Pharaoh's palace, through whom God rescues his people, destroys Egypt, and puts on display his power for all the world to see. Now this man, of course, was Moses. The main character of this second chapter. And in chapter 2, we get the first 80 years or the first two-thirds of Moses' life. You can see that clearly if you look at Acts 7, verse 23 and 30. We won't take the time, but you can note that on your own. Now think about that for a moment. Just one chapter devoted to the first two-thirds of Moses' 120-year life. But you know how many chapters are devoted to the last third, the last 40 years of his life? Well, about 40 in Exodus, about 36 in Numbers, about 34 in Deuteronomy, probably 10 more in Leviticus, not to mention the hundreds of references to Moses in other places of Scripture. So call it maybe 120 chapters devoted to the last 40 years of Moses' life in just one chapter devoted to the first 80 years. Now, why was that? Well, someone has said that the four, in the first 40 years of his life, Moses was learning to be a somebody. And in the second 40 years of his life, he was learning to be a Nobody. And then in the last 40 years of his life, he had to learn that God must be 
everything. And it's, it's at that point that God was really able to use him. The first two-thirds of his life were a painful, however, a necessary foundation upon which Moses' life of service to the people of God could be built. Now, some of us here this morning are in the painful process of being prepared. And it's easy to get discouraged and want to rush through that training process. But in the life of Moses, we see that the, the, the fruit the fruit of this training process. Others of us here this morning may be feeling that two-thirds of our useful life has already passed, and we've missed the opportunity to be used of God in the way that we would have wanted to. Well, so did Moses. But that was when God used him to deliver his people. And some of you here are near or in your 80s. And you're thinking that you're almost at the end of the road and you need to be reminded not to get too comfortable in your rocking chair because God is still delivering his people and he uses people like you to do it. So no matter what stage of life, we have an important role to play. And there are dangers and there are pitfalls along the way. And it's my prayer that by examining these formative years in the life of Moses that the Lord will meet us where we are this morning, and convict and encourage and prepare us. So that's where we're going. Now, this chapter, in this chapter, we see three scenes. Three scenes. Scene one is verses one to ten. It starts in the home of Amram and Jochebed, Moses' parents, and it ends in the palace of Pharaoh's daughter. We'll call that section Moses' the son of Jochebed. Scene two is verses 11 to 15. It starts in the palace and it ends in the Midian desert. And we'll call that section Moses, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And scene three is verses 16 to 22. And it starts in the Midian desert and, well, it ends in the Midian desert as well. And we'll call that section Moses, the son-in-law of a Kenite shepherd. So how, how about we make those the three headings under which we consider this second chapter? Moses, the son of Jochebed, Moses, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses, the son-in-law of a shepherd. So let's start first with Moses, the son of Jochebed. And I want to read again, starting at verse 1. Now, a man... From the house of Levi went and took as a wife, as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. The New King James Version says, when she saw that he was a beautiful child. And Acts 7.20 says, he was beautiful in the sight of God. And we need to remember in our culture that is so anti-children that every baby is beautiful in the sight of God. Every baby is a blessing from the Lord. Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses, might have thought, why bring a baby into the world at a time like this? A male baby can bring nothing but sorrow and suffering and pain to this family. 
and couples today could come to the same conclusion, and so many do. According to a New Morning Consult survey, 17% of 572 millennials that were interviewed, millennials uh, ages 24 to 39, who don't have children said that they would further delay having them because of the pandemic. And 15% said that they are less interested in having children at all because of COVID-19. The article went on to say that a little more than half of childless millennials say a reason they don't have children is that they want to focus on their careers. And 60% of the couples interviewed said that kids were too expensive to raise. The One Child, One Planet campaign featured prominently in Vancouver last year featured ads and billboards that read, one said, conservation begins at conception. Traffic congestion starts at conception. And then the worst, uh, featuring a, a picture of a baby, says the most loving gift you can give to your child is not to have another. These are the messages our culture is sending us. But children are a gift from the Lord. And when they are brought up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord, they will bring great blessing regardless of the prevailing view of the culture. Remember that Moses, this child that Amram and Jochebed must have thought would bring them sorrow, God used to deliver the entire nation. And notice that God caused both a mother and the daughter of this murderous, infanticidal king to see the beauty that he saw in a baby. Never forget that even at this shameful time in the history of this country where nearly 100,000 babies are aborted every year, God can turn the hearts of mothers and God can turn the hearts of lawmakers for the king's heart is in the hand of God. Of the Lord. And notice that what seems to have touched the heart of the mother and princess was seeing the first time they saw the baby Moses. And I wonder if one of the strongest stands that can be made against abortion is bringing, a, bringing children into the world and letting the world see the beauty of a child. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, there are a few Bible stories that are so well known to us, and we all can, can remember the pictures from the picture books that we grew up with, a little basket bobbing among the reeds along the side of the Nile with a princess in her entourage of attendants coming down to the water, and, po- and she's pointing to this basket while there's this little girl that watches um, from the reeds. We, we have all seen the picture. And some commentators, many commentators, praise Jochebed for her careful planning and foresight. But while Hebrews 11 com- commends her for hiding the baby for three months... I don't see anywhere that it commends her necessarily for putting him in the Nile. In fact, I know that's maybe a different thought, but bear with me. In Acts 7, verse 20, it says this. 
in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. Who cast him out? It was his own family. And I think it's important to notice, to notice that. Now, it's hard to be critical when we consider the predicament that that family must have been in. No doubt there was serious consequences for refusing to expose your male baby and uh, refusing to drown him in the Nile. Perhaps both parents would have faced execution for that, and maybe they wondered how in the world they would raise their other children. We don't know. But the Lord had preserved the midwives, right? And while God providentially intervened, You have to at least ask the question whether Moses' parents were acting in faith by effectively turning their child over to the daughter of the Pharaoh who had sentenced him to death. Now, I want to make an application to that. Christian parents today are tempted to do the same thing. Under intense pressure from the culture, we can be be tempted to turn our children over to the world in the hope of giving them every earthly advantage. There is the temptation to put our kids in public schools and to fill their lives with so much extracurricular activity that the responsibility for parenting is effectively turned over to others. And then we wonder why they have no appetite for the word, no appetite for fellowship with those in the church, why they seem so distracted or unwilling to embrace the truths of Scripture for themselves. Is it because... Is it because we are outsourcing their training to the world? But the Lord is gracious, and he gives second chances. And Jochebed here got a second chance. Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket, sends one of, one of her attendants to fetch it, and when she looks inside and sees the child and hears his cry, God melts her heart and brings out her maternal instincts and, tell, and, and causes her to see what he sees. But a beautiful child. So Miriam arrives on the scene offering to fetch a nurse, and the next thing Jochebed knows, her child is being placed back in her arms with this charge. Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Take this child away. And I want us to look carefully at at that charge, and I particularly want the parents in this room to look carefully at that charge, for it's God's charge to us as parents. Take this child away. That's the charge. Don't put them in pretty baskets in the Nile in hopes that the world will take pity on them and raise them for you. And having been given this second chance... With her son. I'm convinced that Jochebed made the training and preparation of Moses her highest priority, don't you think? But there's more. Take this child away and nurse him for me. A mother's ability to produce milk and nurse a baby is dependent upon what she has taken in herself. A starving mother cannot nurse a baby. And if you're going to nurse your child with the pure, sincere milk of the word, as we have in 1 Peter 2, then you must have an appetite and a constitution for solid food yourself. 
You can't nourish an infant well if you're still only drinking milk yourself. As we have in Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Can I just say this? I could wish that every woman in the church was a theologian. That's right. I think every woman in the church should be a theologian. Just because God has ordained men to the role of leadership in the church does not mean for one moment that women have any, are any less capable of grappling with the text and skillfully applying it to the issues of the day. Amen? When I'm struggling personally with a deep theological question, the application of Scripture, on the top of the list of the people that I go to are my own mother. And the reason why is because she has immersed herself in the Scriptures for the better part of a century, not just on simplistic devotionals, but in hours of prayerful meditation on the counsels of God. And there is such a deep need for this. For how can you nurse a child with what you have not taken in for yourself? Then notice, and I will give you your wages. Raising children can seem like a thankless job sometimes, can't it? But speak to grandparents in the church, and they will tell you the great dividends that it pays. I remember a few years back talking to... um, Walter and Francis Cosman. Um, many of you know them. They were, uh, they're, well, probably pushing 90s, in their 90s now. And uh, they, um, they were at this church until they moved in with, their, with their, um, uh, one of their children. And Walter was telling me the, the cost to his business when, he was, um, when his children were younger of closing his briefcase on the weekends and spending time with the children. He said there was a cost to it. There's a real cost to it. But then he talked about, they talked about the dividends that it has paid in years to come as they see their children and their grandchildren um, in families going on for the Lord. Well, we're not told how long Jochebed had Moses, but I'm convinced that she made every minute count for she realized that one day she would have to take her child by the stairs of that imposing palace and release him to his other mother, and all the dangers and temptations of palace life. And parents, it's not long before we must release our children, and so we must make every minute count. And how many adult children are hindered in launching into the next phase of their lives over parents that find themselves unable or unwilling to release them? One of the things that will help you have the courage and faith to release your son or daughter when the time comes is the knowledge that you have brought them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. For the scripture says, train up a child in the way that he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I believe that the lessons that Moses received at his mother's knees stayed with him. For though he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, he never forgot his people. He never forgot the God of Israel. And the day came when he refused to be called the son 
of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrews eleven twenty four to 25. Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Verse 26. Who taught him that? Who taught him about the fleeting pleasures of sin? Who taught him about the reward? Well, I want to believe that it was his mother. And so through all the training and reprogramming that he got in the halls of learning in Egypt, he never lost it. And parents, you can think that your efforts to instruct your children in the word are falling on deaf ears. But the day will come when all those things that you have faithfully taught will come back and your children will grow to value and to prize what they see you valuing and prizing. Well, we've talked about Moses, the son of Jochebed. Let's move to our second point, Moses, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This takes us to our, to our second scene in, the, in verse 11, and the story jumps ahead 40 years. Moses is seen as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, the grandson of Pharaoh, with all the privileges and opportunities that attended that position, possibly even an heir to the throne. At age 40, he's instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, a man mighty in word and deed. Extra-biblical sources tell us that he was a mighty warrior and had even led successful uh, campaigns against the Egyptians for um, for, or rather against the Ethiopians for Pharaoh. So naturally speaking, Moses was well-placed and well-equipped to be the deliverer of God's people. And it seems that at this time, 40 years prior to the burning bush incident where he received his call from God, 40 years before that, he already knew that God was going to use him to deliver his people. For we read in Acts 7.25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. So there was naturally every reason for Moses to stay in the palace. He could have argued that the providential hand of God had placed him there. It sure had. He could have argued that it gave him a unique opportunity to help the people of God, and that it was better for, people, for God's people that he stay there. And he could have argued that it, it would have been a terrible display of ingratitude for him to leave after all that he had been given. Now, there is no question that God had worked providentially to give Moses the education that he received from the Egyptians. And there is no question that God used that in many ways, not least of which would have been to have, have, have written the first five books of the Bible. But there came a point in time. There came a point in time when faith led him out of that position. Now, by the way, never use the providence of God or a sense of obligation to others as a reason to remain in an ungodly position. Never use the providence of God or a sense of obligation to others as a reason to remain in an ungodly position. Moses could have made both arguments, but there came a point when he had to decide whether he would enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin 
or embrace the far greater reward of enduring affliction with the people of God. One commentator put it this way, if providence brought him in to the house of Pharaoh's daughter, faith led him out. Now, in the path of faith, there are tough decisions that need to be made. And many years are wasted by avoiding tough decisions. When God reveals to you that you are in a wrong position, whether that's a relationship or a job or a church, get out. Stop rationalizing and procrastinating. Make the break with an ungodly position, and then you will have clarity to take the next step. That's what Moses had to do, and he did it. But Moses had another important lesson that he had to learn before he could be used to deliver God's people, and that lesson was that in the achievement of God's purposes, there is no room, there is no room for the glory of man. Couldn't Moses have used his position and diplomacy to negotiate the release of the people from the position that he was in? But then that would have made Moses the hero, right? And brothers and sisters, if we are seeking to do the work of God, let us take care that we are not seeking our own glory, but only his. And so this first attempt by Moses to deliver God's people was a mess and a failure. When he saw one of his Hebrew brothers being beaten by an Egyptian, we read in verse 12 that he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, when we read this, let's be honest, most of us think, way to go, Moses. That Egyptian had it coming to him. We love, we just love it when someone stands up to the bully, don't we? But Moses had to realize that in his own power, he couldn't get very far. In his own power, he blew out in a day. Notice that what emboldened him to act was that he saw no one. He looked this way and that, and he saw no one. That's what emboldened him to act. He looked... um, And that particular boldness lasted for a day. Later, he endured for 40 years, leading millions through the desert, not because he saw no one, but rather because he saw someone. Because he saw him who is invisible. And so we read in Hebrews 11, 27, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The first time Moses left Egypt, he was afraid. There was kind of two exoduses for Moses, wasn't there? Two exoduses out of Egypt. The first time Moses left Egypt, he was afraid of the king because he acted in independence on the basis of seeing no one. The second time he left Egypt, he was not afraid of the king because he acted in dependence upon God on the basis of seeing him who is invisible. Now, what produced this change in Moses between these two exoduses? Well, it was a 40-year degree in God's wilderness school. A 40-year degree in God's wilderness school in the backside of the Midian Desert. Not as a prince of Egypt, not even as a shepherd, but as the servant of his father-in-law, the shepherd. And there he remained till every vestige of self-confidence was erased And he became the meekest man that ever lived. And then, and only then, was he small enough for God to use. 
for God to use and to lead his people out of Egypt? Are you small enough for God to use? Am I small enough for God to use? We often concern ourselves whether we're big enough for God to use, eloquent enough, smart enough, wise enough. But so often the greatest blockage to our usefulness is simply that we are just not small enough. And some of us here this morning are doing time in the backside of the desert, learning the difficult lesson that we can't do things in our own strength and we can't do things for our own glory. It's a painful place to live and a painful process to go through. But if you want to be used by God, you have to spend time there. Joseph spent time there. Abraham spent time there. Every one that has been used mightily of God has spent time there. Learning in obscurity. Learning to be faithful in the mundane tasks of life. Learning to be unseen. Learning that in all things, he must have the preeminence. Well, we've talked about Moses, the son of Jochebed. Moses, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now let's quickly go to our last point. Moses, the son-in-law of a shepherd. In verse 16, we see Moses applying his considerable talent to a much humbler task, not delivering a nation from a murderous world leader, but some sisters from some rough shepherds, and then watering their flocks. Then we see him content to settle down, and eventually he gets married and has a child. And the name he gives the child demonstrates the fruit of his time in God's wilderness school, Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. I think Hebrews eleven fourteen to 16 has something to say about this. It speaks of those who acknowledge that they are strangers and exiles in this way. It says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's the fruit of God's wilderness school. It makes us acknowledge that we are sojourners, and it makes us desire a better country. And could it be, dear brothers and sisters, that that's where God wants to bring us through our own wilderness journey? I know a little of the suffering that some of you are passing through at this time. Pastor David mentioned, mentioned it in his prayer, living in a country that we hardly recognize anymore, cast out of our jobs and educational opportunities, not even able to travel, feeling like second-class citizens. But if it gets us to acknowledge that we are truly sojourners, then God has achieved a great work in us. So, brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in God's wilderness school, then do what Moses did here. Apply yourself to a humbler task. My mother used to always say to me, there's always room lower down. Be content to dwell in a degree of obscurity. There are hidden blessings to be found there. And learn there to acknowledge that you are a sojourner. Don't rush through the wilderness experience, for there's mercy in the wilderness. And while you are there, be assured that God has his hand on you. He sees you, and he has not forgotten you. And when his good time has come, he will send you. But you say, 
What about my ministry? What about those that I've been called to deliver? What about the call on my life? Look at verse 24. And God heard the groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. See, God continued to work when Moses went back to school. And while Moses led sheep and lived in obscurity with his new family, in the backside of the Midian desert, God disposed of the Pharaoh who sought Moses' life, and God kept watch over his people, and God prepared his people for their exodus from Egypt. So we've talked about Moses, the son of Jochebed, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and the son-in-law of a shepherd. But you know, ultimately, this isn't really about Moses, is it? It's about God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And in his faithfulness, preparing a man that he can use to deliver them. And God is still doing that, for he loves his people. He hears their groans. He remembers his promises. He sees, he knows, and he is seeking for those who will care for and who will lead his people. So let me ask you, are you willing, am I willing to lay down? Are we willing to lay down our ambitions and seek nothing but his glory and acknowledge that we are strangers and sojourners? Then get ready, because there is no limit to what God is able to do in a man or a woman that is fully submitted to him. He is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. And before we close, I just want to say that there are some here that are still living in slavery to sin and Satan, groaning under the cruel lash of Satan, your taskmaster. God hears your groans. He sees you and knows you, and he has sent a much greater deliverer to you than Moses. He sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world and lived and died and paid the dreadful price, the dreadful penalty for sin, and rose again. And this morning, he offers you forgiveness and cleansing. And he offers to set you free from your cruel slavery to Satan and adopt you into his own family and make you his own child. But you must turn to him in repentance and faith. Won't you do that now? And now we come to the Lord's table, and it's a reminder to us that there is mercy in the wilderness. And in these tokens of his body and his blood, we are reminded of the measure of his love to us, and we find strength to face another week. So let's come together to the Lord's table.